Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 3rd, we are studying Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Jesus goes back to Galilee. He is brought face to face with two daughters, two women, who at first glance couldn't seem to be more different, and yet these two women are in need of the same Savior. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's great to be here. So we get started this morning, Pastor Hill. Let's talk context. We're in the middle of Mark 5. We came off of a long text yesterday. We've got another long text today. What do we need to know about the context going into these verses? I think the most important thing for us to remember is that uh, today we see Jesus has come back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee after the time when he went uh, into the land of the Gerizines or uh, Gerasa, which was kind of on the uh, southeast area of, of the sea and a little bit inland. Uh, there he cast out the demon from, uh, from the man who was suffering, and, and now he's back into territory that is, is definitely uh, territory of Israel. And he's going to be among his own people, whereas before uh, there in Garasi, he was uh, amongst people that would not have had the same background in culture and religion uh, that the people in Israel did. So uh, he's probably in or around Capernaum is our best guess. That was kind of his ministry hub for his Galilean ministry. And that uh, sets the scene, at least for where he is physically today. This text is another one of those examples in the gospel, according to St. Mark, where he digs into a lot of detail for us. We've said that Mark likes to rush through stories, not in a not because he's unconcerned about it, but he's got a point to make. But there are these examples. Yesterday's text was one of them, and today again, where he will really slow it down and give us some detail. And just as I've been reflecting on, particularly Mark chapter 5, I wonder if there's a bit of a climax that Mark is building to here in his narrative with the miracle yesterday and the casting out of the unclean spirit and the two that we're going to see today, because he, he will really slow down here even more than the other gospel writers. Right, um, he does. And in fact, uh, this account of, of Jairus's daughter and uh, the woman who we'll speak about today uh, appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke, being the shortest of the Gospel, counterintuitively has the longest explanation of this episode of the three. So I think you're absolutely right on that. And in chapter five, you know, we see Jesus' power over uh, the demonic realm. We'll see his power over a physical malady as he heals the woman uh, who had her trouble today. And then we will see his power over death as Jairus's daughter is raised. So uh, in a, a very rapid fire gospel, the important things slow down and are looked at in great detail, just like Mark spends so much time in his gospel on the events of Holy Week, making them central as well. So this text and all of chapter five really causes us to pause and think about uh, who is Jesus? And we see here clearly that he's not just a man, but indeed uh, the divine son of God. One of the things that we've been noticing 
after that section of Jesus teaching in chapter four, where he goes into the parables is these miracles are opportunities for people to either respond in faith or not. And we've seen some of both the disciples in the end of Mark chapter four responded in fear. They were afraid when Jesus calmed the storm. In yesterday's text, we saw a great majority of the people respond in fear there on the other side of the sea. Although the man who was actually healed, he responded with faith. And we're going to see that theme continue in today's text as well. Yes, the uh, faithful response of the characters in this episode is really very central to us. Uh, Like you mentioned, oftentimes there is someone to contrast as a negative example in a particular uh, pericope or section of scripture. But here, um, faith is on full display in uh, the characters here and the faithfulness of Christ, the goodness of Christ and his merciful action uh, for, for these people is on full display too. We've got a big chunk of text today, but Mark, in the way that he structures this, uh, puts it together kind of like a sandwich. And we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark already. Back in chapter three, Mark introduced the family members of Jesus and the way they were responding to him. And then he stopped talking about them for a moment in order to introduce the way the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking about Jesus. And then he came back to those the family members at the end of that text. That was in chapter three. We've got another example of that here where Mark puts together this sandwich. So we're going to read it in those three scenes. Jesus introducing first Jairus, or excuse me, Mark introducing Jairus, then interrupting that narrative and then coming back to finish the account of Jairus. So to start, we've got Mark five verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. All right, so there's the opening scene of this narrative. Jesus, as you said, Pastor Hill, goes back to the other side, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, probably Capernaum. That makes sense. That was his home base for most of his Galilean ministry. He's got this great crowd still. He's beside the sea. Take us into the way Mark sets this scene for us. Yeah, I think um, especially when reading Mark, we might, from the pace of, of Mark's immediacy, uh, look over some details that we shouldn't look over. And the first one that I see here is is the true immensity of the crowds and their eagerness to see Jesus. When you come ashore on a boat, the most natural thing you would do is you dock the boat, you get off and you'd, you'd walk in a ways. Uh, but here it seems that the crowd is so big and so interested in Jesus that he's prevented from making any progress from walking past the shore itself. Um, we see here that uh, the crowd isn't a threat to Jesus. They're just enamored by him. But it reminds us of earlier in the gospel where Jesus gets up in a boat to have a little bit of space at least. But here the people are just pressing upon him um, because they're beginning to realize who he is um, and are intrigued by uh, his ministry of, of teaching and healing. And in the midst of that comes Jairus. Um, we know that Jairus is called a ruler of the synagogue. And if we're not being careful, we might hear that and think of him sort of as a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, one of these um, religious officials centered mostly in uh, Jerusalem, a part of the big power structure. But what we really see is that a ruler of a synagogue was most similar today uh, to what we would call uh, an elder in one of our own congregations or maybe a congregational president. But the rulers of the synagogue had 
the role of ensuring that uh, the weekly Sabbath services were held, uh, that all the physical arrangements for worship were made. It was really an office of, of service, but it was also an office that would have uh, betrayed the fact that he was highly regarded by his uh, fellow Jews in his community. It's distinct from the office of rabbi, of course. Um, he's, he's seeing to the, the physical arrangements that need to be made there. Uh, but he's presented to us not as someone threatened by Jesus and, and his ministry, but someone who is committed to God and his word and is looking for the things that God's word promises. Well, and if we see this as happening in Capernaum itself, which seems likely, it's not certain, but it seems likely that this is in Capernaum. That's where Jesus preached already in Mark chapter one. He was received favorably there for the most part. That incident at the very beginning of his ministry where he cast out the demon and everyone is amazed by his authority. It seems that Jairus would have been one of those who would have responded favorably. Perhaps even you know going through Mark chapter one, after he leaves the synagogue later that night after the Sabbath is passed, you get this crowd of people that comes to him asking for healing. You can't, and this is me reading beyond what's there, but you kind of wonder, maybe Jairus' daughter has been sick for a while and he just hasn't had his turn in line. The point is, and I think this is what you're driving at, when we hear his connection with the synagogue, we shouldn't start to think, oh, this is an enemy of Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Here's someone who's responding favorably to Jesus. He's coming to Jesus in faith. Exactly, yeah. And and you made that point that um, how many synagogues are there in Galilee, right? Um, can we say with exact certainty that where he cast out the demon was the same synagogue in which he was a ruler? Not necessarily, but word travels quickly. Um, things are not as spread out in Galilee as we might imagine them to be. Um, and he would have at the very least known of what Jesus had done that day and on other occasions and very possibly may have seen it himself. So Jairus comes Tell us about, you know, what does Jairus do? What does he want from Jesus? Right. So Jairus comes with a, um, a heart-wrenching request. It shows uh, in the text that upon seeing Jesus, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. So there's a lot of, a lot of pathos, a lot of heartfelt um, I'm asking here because the thing that's going on is his, his little daughter, it says, um, and, and what a, a sweet way for him to talk of his, his child is at the point of death. And he asked that Jesus would come and lay his hands upon her so that she would be made well and live. Um, it may seem like a simple request in simple words, but he's, he's being very clear in that he knows uh, by faith that Jesus can do something for his daughter. He's not saying, come and see maybe if something could happen or if you might help. Um, he says, come lay hands so that she will be made well and live. Um, and, I just can't imagine being in that position and what that must be like for Jairus. And, and again, we see the compassion of Christ that is poured out upon him in this uh, request for help. Anyone with a, a little child, and as we'll find out later, this, this child is 12 years old, is going to have your heart go out to Jairus in his situation. And the faith that he displays in Jesus is, is quite something, as you said. This is not a if you can. We're going to hear somebody else in the Gospel of Mark say that later. This is say, come do this. I know what you can do. Please come. Jesus does have compassion. The crowd goes with him. So, I mean, pretty well, so far in this scene, I don't think there's anything terribly surprising or out of the ordinary at this point yet. Right, right. I, I think the only thing that we should note here is is the faith 
that is on display in Jairus and the way that that moves uh, Christ to action. As we see that Christ uh, then begins uh, following on the way to Jairus' house. And the other thing we notice is that as Jesus goes, so also goes the crowd with him. That's right. Those people just keep following him around. So there's the scene. Jairus has come. He's asked Jesus for help in faith. Jesus responds with compassion. The crowd is going with him. We think we know where this is going, but something happens on the way. And so Mark continues his account now in verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That's scene two. This is the middle of the sandwich. The woman with the issue of blood. And she's introduced in verse 25. There's several things that we can talk about here. Before we talk specifically about what's going on with her, maybe just a bit of compare and contrast is in order. You've got Jairus and his daughter on the one hand. You've got this unnamed woman now what are some of those comparisons and contrasts we can make between these two characters in the story? Well, of course, um, the first comparison uh, or contrast that we would see rather is their their station in life as defined by uh, their sex, right? Jairus is, of course, a man in a, a male-centered uh, religious community. That's not a bad thing, um, but it would have uh, had it would have entailed a certain amount of regard and respect um, and. Uh, ability to uh, approach uh, another male rabbi, um, perhaps with a bit more confidence. Uh, We see this woman here who uh, we have that is not even named, uh, emphasizing the lowliness of her station. And also, uh, we're not told of her connection to to any man, a husband or anything like that. There's a theory that perhaps she was widowed because it mentions that she had spent all of her money on the physicians and that she may have been left uh, money by her husband. Now, that's conjecture, but regardless, um, from what we tell from the text, a woman on her own. And we see that uh, she is dealing with a, a physical ailment that's going to cause her to be alienated from her people. And the contrast is now one man who is well-respected, who the world might look at that man approaching Jesus and and say, of course, that makes sense that he would do so. And a woman that the world would not expect to um, be able to approach a highly regarded rabbi such as Jesus himself. So uh, there is a big big difference in the two. And a a person who regards Jesus as, as just another man might say, well, listen to the request of Jairus, ignore the request of this woman. Uh, but that's not at all what Jesus does. So if, if society is a totem pole, Jairus and then by connection to him, his daughter, they are at the top of this totem pole. This woman who approaches Jesus with faith, and we'll talk about that, but with a bit of timidity as well, she's at the bottom. 
Part of that has to do with the condition that she's suffering from. Verse 25 says that she has a discharge of blood for 12 years. What what might be going on here? Right. So um, Mark is speaking a, a bit euphemistically, but making his point that, that the issue that she has is a bleeding disorder um, that is feminine in nature, but not related to a woman's natural cycle. Uh, there is the uh, guess that perhaps she had uh, a uterine hemorrhage is in the study notes of the Lutheran study Bible. That's as good of a guess as any. It would have been a, a type of bleeding that was, was not regular or cyclical, um, but would have been consistent. And in that state, um, according to Old Testament law, she would be regarded as ceremonially unclean in a perpetual sense, not in just the sense for a time which would have caused um, all kinds of issues. For example, um, if she was indeed an unmarried woman, uh, she would not have been marriageable in that case. Um, She would have not been able to um, interact with society in a normal way, not to mention the physical problems that go along with that. When she's healed, she can immediately sense it in her body. Um, The pain goes away. So, So she's suffering greatly here, and nobody else has been able to help her. Um, yet she she steps out and and seeks help from Jesus by faith. The fact that she would have been unclean because of this issue of blood, I think, is another contrast between her and Jairus. As we said, Jairus, we shouldn't consider him one of the religious elites in the sense that he has connections to the Pharisees or the Sadducees and Jerusalem, yet he is the ruler of the synagogue, which is a prominent position there religiously in Galilee. Here you've got, again, if you think of the religious aspect of society as a totem pole, Jairus is at the top, this woman's at the bottom. Who should Jesus help? I mean, I think, I think with both of those contrasts, the question becomes, who's, who has Jesus come to help? And at least our perhaps sinful inclination would be, well, of course he's going to help Jairus. And if he gets to this woman, great. Jesus, of course, doesn't, doesn't treat her that way. You mentioned the help that she has sought so far. Mark makes a point that there were many physicians that she tried to get help from, but in fact, they actually only added to the suffering. Right. Isn't that amazing? So um, she obviously has availed herself of every possible treatment. Um, So we sense a, um, first off, a responsibility. I mean, some people just let something go forever and don't, uh, don't treat it. And they show up at the doctor and say, where have you been? This is not this woman. She has gone to everyone who is a physician or regards themselves or, or promotes themselves as such. Um, it, this is probably not like going to the doctor today in the way we look at this. Um, there would have been people who would have had uh, supposed traditional cures. Um, the Talmud supposedly um, has 10 different potential remedies that are, re- that are um, offered for someone who has this um, unusual bleeding condition. So uh, all these treatments may not have all been things that would have been pleasant either. They could have been things that inflicted further pain, and it does say her condition grew uh, worse rather rather than better. Now, the temptation then is when your condition goes from bad to worse to worse to worse is to fall into despair. And despair is indeed the opposite of faith. Um, yet she has, has somehow resisted the temptation to despair, and in seeing Jesus uh, is moved to faith, and her faith um, works itself out in a unusual way here in the way that she's going to approach Jesus. Well, and and that I think we've been talking a lot more about the contrast that this woman has with Jairus, but there's a a point of comparison, a point of similarity between the two is that both of them have heard something of Jesus and know that he is the one 
to help them. They both are exhibiting the same faith in Jesus. Right, right. If anyone can help us, it's going to be him. Now they're going to approach him differently. Right. Uh, Jairus with confidence and directly, and she with um, a humility that maybe even is more than she would have needed uh, before she walks up to him. Um, and that's that's going to be another interesting contrast here too. So in verse 29, the, no, excuse me, verse 28, she's saying to herself, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. Why, why is this what she thinks? I don't know. <laughs> me neither. Is, isn't that a strange, um, a strange idea? Yeah. Um, it seems almost idolatrous in a way, like, like his garments are magic. Um, and you might say maybe this is some kind of misperception of hers. But then again, when she does touch his garments, Jesus perceives that power goes out of him. Um, this is one of the most unusual places in the scripture, I think, in the Gospels that describe Jesus healing someone because we we get the impression that Jesus doesn't have his attention on what's going on or something like that, which we have to wrestle with. But regardless of why she thought it would work, um, I think what we see in this is the fact that she doesn't want to approach Jesus directly because one possibility is she thinks he might not be willing to help her. That's a possibility. But the other possibility is that she knows she's in a state of uncleanness. And in the same way that uh, the lepers approach Jesus at a distance, she is approaching him at a way that would uh, preserve his own, uh, his own cleanness ceremonially, at least the way she figures it in their society. So I, I guess she, she doesn't put her faith in the garment, we wouldn't say. She would say, if I touch even his garments, she puts the trust in Jesus as a person, uh, yet the way she makes contact with him is mediated in a sense right there. In verse 27, it does say that she had heard the reports about Jesus. And just as a review, what would those reports have included? Certainly what he did there in the synagogue in Capernaum. But even, I think, a little farther in chapter 1, there would have been the report that the leper gave that Jesus had healed. And Jesus had healed him specifically by touching him. Now, she does not seem to have that same gumption to to do that, just to go up to Jesus and ask him to touch her, perhaps for the reason that you said she's respecting his own state of cleanliness. But she's recognizing, perhaps, through the report that she has heard, that Jesus' touch can do something, mm -hmm. even if it is only his garment. I think you're right to lay the emphasis on the word his there. And again, there's a bit of a similarity with Jairus. Jairus has asked Jesus, come and lay your hands on her. True. Jairus also is looking to the touch of Jesus. And not to, well, to make a little bit of a point of it at least, the touch of Jesus is a big deal. The fact that he makes physical contact with people, sometimes purposely here, we're going to find out not according to his own purpose, at least the way the narrative reads, but the touch of Jesus actually makes a difference. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, because in touching Jesus, uh, you touch God. Yeah. Uh, what a reality of the incarnation that we read through the Gospels and we know it at the back of our head that Jesus is the divine human union, 100% of, of both natures in one man. But you can, you can forget it fairly easily as you read through the story as a narrative. So uh, in reaching out and touching him, it's not... Uh, it's not some magical thing. It's it's a it's a contact with the divine, contact with with God Himself, and 
something that no one else could possibly bring to bear on the situation. Sure. And contact with the divine in a way that's not going to kill this woman. Right. I mean, you think of the times when people will see God in the Old Testament and they're afraid they're going to die. Here's an example of Jesus coming in our flesh means that we can see God, we can actually touch God. And instead of that killing us, in fact, it, it does the exact opposite. His holiness, his salvation comes to us rather than the, the other way around. It's really, a, and as you said, a wonderful reality because of the incarnation. Right, right, yeah. So this, this woman, she's going to go up to Jesus. She's going to touch his garments. She has confidence. She's going to be made well. And it, it happens. Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of disease. So the woman feels something and Jesus does too. And this again is another one of those moments in the gospel of Mark where the way Jesus is described kind of leaves us scratching our heads. We've got just a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Hill. Let's let's start digging into this. Right. This notion that Jesus perceives that power goes out from him. And then he turns around and says, who touched my garments? So you're right. In in this instance and in some others in Mark, Jesus is described in very, gosh, I don't, I don't want to say it this way, but very human terms in ways that at least in the immediate verses might cause us to say, wait a second, I thought this was God in the flesh. How is he wondering where uh, this came from? How does power go out of him as if it... Uh, the divine batteries in him became discharged somehow. I don't even know how to describe this. It's not the way we're used to talking about Jesus. So a couple ways we can think about this is perhaps Jesus is playing along is one way that uh, people work through this problem, that for the opportunity to teach and the opportunity to uh, highlight the faith of the woman, he for a moment plays coy that he doesn't know who it was. Because if he didn't ask and he turned around and said, you touched me, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to confess that that was what she had done and confess in the positive sense, not not fess up to a crime, of course. Um, it says, of course, that when he gives that opportunity, she comes in fear and trembling and, and says the whole truth. And what's better than the whole truth of God springing forth from our lips about what he's done for us? And we'll pick up more of that thought on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 3rd. We're looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We have Pastor Nate Hill with us. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' reaction 
to the woman touching him. He knows, based on what he says, that someone has touched him. He's felt the power go out from him. He starts asking, who touched my garments? You suggested that perhaps Jesus is playing along or or said another way, he's inviting this woman to identify herself, to come to him openly in faith. I, I think that, that that fits, for example, with the way that God acts in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree and they've, they've sinned, they've tried to hide themselves from God, God asks, where are you? Well, of course he knows where they are. And then as, as he begins to draw the story out of Adam and Eve, he'll, he'll ask them, have you eaten? Well, he knows that. He's inviting his children to confess. And here, I think we can see it very similarly. And as you said, not confess in the sense of fess up to what she's done wrong, but confess her faith publicly, that she came to Jesus knowing who he was, what he could do. She desired healing, and so she reached out in faith and received it. I, I think that that fits well with what we see from God elsewhere in the scriptures. Absolutely. And when she does come and and speak and confess what has happened, it says she told him the whole truth. I don't I don't think the whole truth here just means, oh yeah, it was me and I grabbed grabbed your garment. I think it's the whole truth of, of her life up to this point, or at least her, her life over the past 12 years, all the details that Mark made us aware of, because how would Mark have you know, known them if they hadn't been spoken as well? Um, so this notion that she pours her heart out and says, and the only thing I thought I could do was come to you. And, and the faith that she places in him then is spoken in the presence of this great crowd. And it's, on the basis of that, then that Jesus will commend her in his next words that he speaks. I, I think you're you're right. Again, we've said this before in this series on Mark that Mark likely gets a lot of his material from Peter, mm-hmm. and of course, Peter is right here with Jesus. It it doesn't say this time that Peter's the one that speaks up to Jesus about you know saying, "Hey, why are you asking who touched me, Jesus?" But it's it, certainly would fit with Peter. And we know later that Peter's going to be one of the three that will go privately to see what happens with Jairus's daughter. So it, I, I think you're right that the whole truth there, that is what Mark has just recounted. And he learned that because Peter was there. You see that eyewitness character again coming through here in the gospel, according to St. Mark, from the account of Peter. And so Peter, you know, he's seeing all this. He's told Mark all this. The woman comes. She tells Jesus everything that we've just read. And his response to her is just marvelous. Take us into verse 34. Right. In verse 34, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What what wonderful words. First, the thing that strikes me is the way he addresses her, daughter. Um, that's not the normal way an adult man would address an adult woman in that culture. So what that tells us is that it's indicating that she's a part of, of the family of God by faith, a part of this this kingdom that he is inaugurating and bringing into the world. And it's a, a very uh, important word that's already occurred once in this chapter where Jairus speaks of his little daughter uh, for whom he has such great um, care and, and desire to protect and, and care for. So that's that's the amazing thing there. But then we see that it's her faith that has made her well. Now, that's a difficult phrase 
uh, your faith has made you well. For some people, it's not a difficult phrase at all. They say your faith has made you well means that uh, all you have to do is is believe or trust or move yourself uh, to a deep emotional experience of faith, and then God is obligated to help you. Well, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that it's your faith that has received that forgiveness that Christ has brought. Without the faith, it wouldn't have been able to have been received, but the credit, of course, and the true cause of that healing was the power of, of Jesus that he brings into the world. Yeah, I mean, Jesus says, you know, he, he knows that the power has gone out of him. So we've already seen that it is that divine nature in Christ, that power that he has because he is God. This is the, the cause of the healing. But it was her faith that brought her to Jesus in the first place that led her to reach out and touch the garment. The faith, as you said, received the gift of Christ. The word daughter here, and, and we're going to come back to this as the text turns again to Jairus in a little bit, that it's, it is such a huge, a huge word. The fact that, well, one, I, I think back again to Mark chapter three, where you've got Jesus' family on the outside, and he identifies those who are around him as the family. And he says, whoever does the will of God. Now, he doesn't use the term daughter or son there. He uses mother, brother, sister. Mm-hmm. But I think putting this term, this familial term in there fits nicely. So what does it mean to do the will of God and so be a part of the family of Jesus? It means to believe in him, right. to have faith, and to expect that he will give you the good blessings that he has promised to, to give. And so that that word daughter is, is ah, yeah, it's, it's huge. The... The other thing that I think stands out, and this, I think, starts to bridge us back toward Jairus, is, you know, we've been talking this contrast in terms of social standing, religious standing. For Jesus, he names this woman daughter, which is what Jairus has named his daughter. For Jesus, he's come to help those who are in need, regardless of their standing in the world. Right. And it's easy for us to forget, though, um, we're on the way to Jairus' house, right? And, and we're on the way for Jesus to heal the daughter, and Jesus stops, and he heals a daughter all the while, while we're wasting precious time for another one who is on death's door. And, and that's the amazing thing to me as this story plays out. We get the idea that this is not just a, a quick thing that takes place, but an actual, um, an actual interruption, an actual traffic jam on the way to the destination and I can't imagine being Jairus in that mm. scenario, which, as, as we come back to uh, him, we'll see his reaction, and it's not what I would have done. Right, yeah. So let's let's pick up Jairus's story, which is what St. Mark does. Again, Jesus has said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mark continues now in verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. That's the rest of the text we've got for today. That was Mark 5, 35 through 43. So, Pastor Hill, as you mentioned, there's been this large interruption. And again, Mark tells it, he gives us a lot of detail there. It seems that we should think this took a little bit of time for Jesus' precious time, if you're Jairus. And and just to, to emphasize the point, now this is going to be me reading into the text a little bit, although I don't think it's out of place entirely. Notice that verse 35 says, while he was still mm-hmm. speaking. So this is the way that I imagine it. And again, I don't know that this is possible, exactly true, but I, the way I imagine it is as Jesus is saying to this woman with issue of blood, daughter, that's the same moment that the guy comes from Jairus's house and says to him, your daughter. So like, imagine if you're watching this sort of on a movie, those words are being said simultaneously. And so there's this moment of just great joy for this one woman. And now Jairus hears the word daughter and it's like a knife goes into his heart. That's, that's the way I picture the scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. I mean, it's the reality that happens even today. Somebody else gets healed and somebody else it seems at the time anyway, does not. And how do you make sense out of that? Um, two people with faith in Christ and, and one in the immediate term gets what they're asking for. The other one, uh, the healing seems to be far off or, or perhaps not coming at all. And here the finality of death seems to put an end to all hope. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing that you can read over in the text so quickly, how Jairus is going to be affected by this. So, And of course, the thing that the uh, bearers of this bad news bring, why trouble the teacher any further, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Um, what's the point in you coming now? Um, she's dead, and as everyone in the world knows, death is the end, and there's nothing you can do anymore. Yeah, this this now, as we said earlier, when Jairus initially came to Jesus, this is a scene that we've seen play out before in the Gospel of Mark. Someone who is sick is either brought to Jesus or comes to Jesus, and he heals them. But now, with the news of Jairus's daughter's death, we're entering into uncharted territory, at least as the way Mark has laid it out. Jesus has not been brought face to face with someone who is physically dead. I suppose there might have been a, a bit of a foreshadow in the previous text where the man with the unclean spirit was living among the tombs. Right. So we, we maybe know that something like what we're going to see is coming. But as you said, like, well, why bother Jesus? It, it's over. It's done. Now, uh, we said earlier, and this was me putting words into the text, you know, kind of imagine the knife going through your own heart if you're Jairus. How does Jairus seem to respond in the text? He doesn't seem to respond in the way that we would expect. Um, You would expect that Jairus would immediately go up to Jesus and grab him uh, by the shirt collar and, and say, why in the world did you stop and help this woman whose issue wasn't nearly as bad as my daughter's? Um, She would have been here to heal after you'd gone to my house. Um, You know, why would you act this way? Um, But we don't hear a peep here from what goes on. What we see is Jesus speaks first. Jairus sits in silence. Jesus speaks first. It says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, that's Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Reassuring words, right? So implicit in this is that Jairus' reaction is not anger. 
He's not stewing in anger quietly. He's, he's brokenhearted. He's in fear because his daughter is gone. Um, but perfect love casts out fear. The healing that, that Christ knows he is going to bring is, is going to bring him, you know, ultimate joy and restoration. So that's, that's the amazing thing that his faith endures, even though, you know, buffeted by the circumstances through the death of, of his daughter here. Uh, Jesus strengthens his faith, that faith that Jairus had in coming to Jesus in the first place. Jesus seeks to strengthen it, to cast out the fear, to strengthen the faith. Do not fear, only believe. And so Jesus continues, but now the scene changes a little bit. You noted at the very beginning that Jesus has continued to attract these large crowds. That large crowd has been there, but as they get to Jairus's house, Jesus changes that. He only brings along three, Peter, James, and John, a familiar trio to us. I I think this may be the first time they've been singled out in the gospel of Mark. I believe you're right, yes. They'll stay a familiar trio to us, the inner circle, if you want to call them that, of Jesus' disciples. They're going to be the witnesses to what Jesus will do. Jesus and these three get to the house. What do they see there? So they show up at the house, and while it's just those three uh, that are accompanying Jesus and Jairus from the journey on the way, and that crowd is left behind, there are people at the home when they arrive. And as they come to the house, um, there's uh, the sound of of mourning, weeping and wailing, this type of, of guttural uh guttural grief that you hear that differs based on the circumstances. Um, when someone who's lived a long life, uh, who's persisted in the faith and in our day passes away, we mourn, but we mourn in, in a certain manner. When someone dies suddenly, it's different, but, but perhaps the death of a child is the biggest offense to our understanding of what life is supposed to be and how God is supposed to work. So you can imagine uh, the grief that's there, presumably including even uh, the child's mother who would have been at the house while Jairus went to go get Jesus. So um, it's the type of thing that evokes Christ's compassion um, in the same way that he has compassion on on others in different places in the gospel. Hmm. So Jesus is, is going to have compassion. And in verse 39, he gets there. It says, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I don't think they told us to say that at the seminary, Pastor Hill, when you get to the grieving family. Right. <laughs> How does Jesus say this? What, what, does he, what does he mean? It doesn't sound terribly compassionate. What does he mean? Right. So he doesn't mean uh, to placate them with some kind of of platitude such as she's in a better place right now. And and we mean well, people mean well when they try and comfort with those words. And is it, is it true? Sure. It's true. Um, but those things often can hurt more than they can heal when someone's in the midst of grief. What he's, he's saying is that you're about to see something about the reality of death that is going to be changed by the fact that I've come into this world. Um, you're going to see that death, the final uh, word, as you have thought it to be, is going to prove uh, on the basis of the kingdom that I'm ushering in to be nothing more uh, than a sleep, a sleep from which God, who has created the body, uh, can can raise the body uh, and waken the body just by the power of his word. I, you know, what I said earlier was a bit tongue-in-cheek. There is a, a place to speak of death as sleep. Jesus does so here. 
it's something he will do elsewhere. He uses this same language when he's talking to his disciples and Mary and Martha when it comes to the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. St. Paul picks up on this term elsewhere when he calls the death of Christians a falling asleep. I think it's worth exploring a little bit. What What is the comparison that the scriptures are making when they talk about the death of a Christian as sleep? Right. So <clears throat> the death of a Christian is like sleep in the sense that sleep naturally results in an awakening. And as we lay a body to rest in, in the grave, uh, we go there in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We go there recognizing uh, that on the day of Christ's return, that body will rise. Um, that body will awaken. Um, I have a cemetery in my backyard, so to speak, behind our parsonage. And and I've joked uh, that if somebody wanted to see something funny, they'd come play the trumpet out of the outside of the pastor's house because the first place I'm looking is out that north window sure. to see what's going on there at the cemetery as the dead in Christ arrive, uh, rise. So it's a sleep in that sense. It's, it's not a sleep in the sense that nothing happens. We perceive nothing in our soul as our, our soul goes on uh, to paradise, as Christ says, but the body, it sleeps and it rests until the day of the resurrection of all flesh. So we don't want to go into this idea necessarily that you perceive nothing in the time between now and the resurrection, that idea of soul asleep. Uh, that's not the best way to go here. Um, but we go and as we lay that body down, what do we lay them down on in coffin? A pillow, right? I mean, the coffin looks essentially like a bed, uh, and it's a bed from which we we will arise on the last day. Right. The the image of sleep and death being put side by side in the scriptures has to do with the the fact that for us as Christians, death is temporary. It's something that will one day have an end for us from which we will awaken and we will be up and walking and alive yet again. And in that sense, then for us as Christians, although it might not be the thing that you or I would say to the grieving family at that very moment, this is language that we ought to use as Christians and take great comfort in and bring comfort to each other when we are grieving, to know that death is asleep, we should be careful and and be, I can't think of the word I'm trying to sensitive. say. Sensitive. Thank you. Apparently, I'm, I need to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> we should be sensitive to the needs of others, but we shouldn't shy away from speaking this hope to people when they need to hear it. Right. The difficult uh, topics like this that require us to, to really teach about death and resurrection those difficult truths need to be taught when we're not in the throes of grief ourselves. Um, we should teach them on All Saints Day. We should teach them in Bible studies. We should teach them on Easter. Yeah. Um, we should go perhaps and have the sunrise service at the cemetery instead of in the church, um, confessing the resurrection. And then people are equipped and ready um, to receive those words differently and to receive them uh, understanding uh, what we're speaking of. Mm. So with all of that, back to the the text, again, Jesus has said the child is not dead but sleeping. And what do you mean, again, put yourself in these people's shoes, those who are there mourning, they're terribly upset because this is the death of a child. They laugh at Jesus. Right, yeah. That's pretty bad. Uh, don't laugh at Jesus. Bad, <laughs> bad move. Um, <laughs> they, of course, laugh at him because they think what he is saying is not making a, a theological statement about death. They think that he doesn't know a, a dead person from a sleeping person. Um, and obviously, that's not the case. Now, he puts them all outside, right? And now he's going to go into the very room in which this girl's body uh, is laying with the father and the mother and Peter and James and John. Um, and, and now... 
the real thing is going to happen. So the real thing is going to happen in the presence of these few witnesses. What does Jesus do and how does Mark record it for us? Well, he records it in such a way that makes very clear that he touches the girl. And in a chapter where we've talked about uncleanness and becoming ceremonial unclean, touching a body is something that would cause someone to be ceremonially unclean for a time and there were rites of purification. And this theme in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is not afraid of the unclean, the leper, um, this woman, the, even this this body. But he takes her by the hand in, in a way that I perceive as being a, a gentle and kind uh, motion. And he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise, wake up. Um, sure enough, she does. Just as by the power of God's word, all creation was called into existence, um, he calls this girl to wake up. And, and what an amazing experience. Mark records for us the particular words that Jesus said in the language he said them, Talitha kumi. Why might he have done that? Yeah, so I think what Mark is doing here is he is telling us that these words did something. Now, he doesn't give us these words so that we would turn them into something magical or an incantation. And it might sound that way because it's in a strange language to us. No, he's saying these are the words that passed Jesus' lips. And when they passed Jesus' lips, this girl woke up. Um, We have this idea that speech does something uh, in society as well as in our religious uh, faith. We call this a performative speech act. It means that by the speaking of particular words, something is performed and happens. In our society, a judge, when he uh, says not guilty and bangs down the gavel, that person is not guilty in our society. They can't be tried again. It's over. When uh, you or I stand at the front of a church on the day of a wedding and we say, I pronounce you to be husband and wife, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that couple is married. When we uh, have the joy of speaking the words of absolution over uh, those who have confessed their sins, it is forgiven, just as if Christ our Lord was saying those words himself. It's a performative speech act that words do it. But here we see that the words can do something that we likely would have never imagined, call, uh, call death into life. And, and that's the amazing thing that Mark wants us to get here. Yeah, the word, the word of the Lord does what he says. And so Mark then, having given us that climax, he records a little bit of the aftermath. We learn that the girl gets up, she starts walking. We learn she's 12 years old. Uh, that's just a coincidence. The, the woman with the issue of blood suffered for 12 years. Yeah, I, I can't think that it would be. Hmm. You know, there's, there's no way that we would have this 12-year period just verses away recorded twice. Now, what we make of it, I don't exactly know. Uh, at first, I was trying to make all kinds of crazy connections and came up with a few that after I reflected upon them, I said, no, there's no way that's it. But I think the one thing we can say for certain is at the moment that Jairus and his wife are experiencing this moment of joy at the birth of this daughter, uh, this woman is seeing the beginning of her slide down into illness and, and trouble. And their paths in life, as we've talked about that totem pole, diverged further from there over time. Uh, yet Jesus still um, speaks to both of them and, and heals them both in the way that they need as they exhibit uh, a similar faith, even though they're very different people. That's about as far as I can get on the 12 year thing. Um, but it, it certainly can't be an accident. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I like the way that you painted that they, they 
from that moment 12 years ago diverge in terms of social and religious standing. But here, because of the action of the Lord, they're brought back together as one under Christ. And and maybe even we would say under under his family, going back to that daughter language that's been used throughout this text. So I yeah, I, I think we could I think we could say that. What about you've got two other things. One is that Jesus tells these witnesses, don't say anything, and then he gives the girl something to eat. Right. So this notion of don't tell anyone about this. Well, he reveals this to the parties involved, obviously, who were there, the the family of the girl, Um, Peter, James, and John, who he wants to see this. And presumably when he says tell no one, he means don't tell the other disciples either Um, and, and no one else. Now, this idea, some people call it the messianic secret. That's maybe not the best way to talk about it. But it's a, it's a feature of Jesus' early ministry that he doesn't want to let the cat out of the bag entirely. Um, some people say it's reverse psychology. If you tell them, don't tell anybody, then they're going to go tell them, and then the world's going to know even faster. I, I don't know if I'd reduce it quite to that. But it's this notion that Jesus' ministry needs time to unfold, and that um, allowing his ministry the time to unfold slowly over time will will give the opportunity for for many people to see the fullness of who he is uh, and to turn to him in faith. Um, and then this idea that she is told to eat something, um, well, what does that demonstrate more so than the fact that she's not an apparition? This is not a vision. It's not a vision of a future resurrection that will be a reality someday. It's the fact that, no, this girl is alive here and now. She's eating. She's drinking. And, of course, when we think of Jesus' own post-resurrection appearances, well, what does he do? He eats and he drinks there with his disciples to demonstrate the same. A real resurrection is what she receives. It's what our Lord receives, and it's what we will receive on the last day as well in him. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas helping us this morning with Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about Mark chapter 5 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send us an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in this morning and listening. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.